Hi, I'm Brett Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Thank you for joining us today for a special Sunday edition of RegWatch. I'll be introducing you to our guest in just a moment. But first, hysteria over the Wuhan coronavirus has exploded across the West. And when we characterize it here at RegWatch that it's a hysteria, we mean just that. COVID-19 is no different than any number of countless scare stories manufactured by the progressive left over the past decades in order to wrench power from the people and hand it over to unaccountable government bodies. It's a strong editorial position and one which RegWatch shall back up. But first, before the COVID-19 hysteria gripped the West, Canada was dealing with a national crisis that left many commentators, including myself, saying enough is enough. And that is the best way to describe the motivating passion behind conservative commentator Aaron Gunn, who joins us here today. His crusade to free Canada from the lethal grip of extreme left-wing ideology has actually made a very big impact on social media sites like Facebook. He has deeply embedded himself within Canada's conservative social media movement. He's produced scores of videos, earning over 25 million views, and, that and he challenges the left on major issues such as erasing of Canada's history, free speech, law and order, and the protests over the Coastal GasLink Pipeline Project. Aaron, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Thank you for having me. Now, um, we're going to dive into the issues here in Canada first, and we'll, we'll zoom back over to COVID-19 at the latter half of the show. But first off, let's talk about what happened with you, Vic. First, give us some, uh, an idea of where you're from. You are from Victoria. You, Vic, your alma mater, and you just got deplatformed deplatformed essentially from a major speech, correct? Yeah, so I'm from Victoria. That's where I'm based. That's where I grew up. Uh, that's the uh, university I, I went to and uh, graduated from, got a degree in a Bachelor of Commerce. And uh, while I do my political videos all across the country, uh, particularly here in BC, uh, Victoria is still where I uh, managed to call home. So keeping an eye on on uh, the city council and some of the uh, the craziness that happens as part of Victoria politics is definitely part of what I'm doing on a on a daily basis. So there's a free speech club at the university. Um, it's run by uh, a young man named Levi, who I didn't know before this, and he reached out to me over my Facebook page and asked if I would be willing to come and speak about the other side of the wet suet and protests and the coastal gas link pipeline debate. And uh, I said, sure, of course, I'm happy to do it. Uh, always happy to come and speak to uh, especially young people who want to learn the other side of the story. And I was expecting it just to be, you know, a handful, a couple dozen people uh, might uh, put the invitation out to some followers, but uh, nothing uh, super spectacular. And then what happened is kind of the uh, left wing, uh, Enviro mob there at UVic, it's kind of like the rent a protester that seemed to be protesting something different every week, caught wind of it, uh, started spam posting the Facebook page, and uh, proceeded to try to get UVic to shut the event down by, by claiming there was going to be some kind of violent confrontation. And uh, they were successful in doing that because UVic uh, capitulated uh, immediately rather than uh, try to see the event go forward and defend uh, their students' right to freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry. So for our viewers to better understand who may have not seen your videos, and we'll, we'll show a, a couple here real soon, um, characterize the kind of commentary that you make uh, and then why that might have been problematic here for you, Vic. So I think the what makes it problematic 
for you, Vic, is the fact that uh, kind of that far left mob, the same people that were blockading the legislature, uh, trying to blockade John Horgan, the premier's house, et cetera, et cetera, uh, really don't like my content. Um, now, uh, for this issue specifically, I am unapologetically uh, pro coastal gas link and uh, uh, pro Trans Mountain as well. And I think what really annoys them is the fact that I kind of point out their hypocrisy and the fact that they're just using First Nations as pawns to try to further their radical environmental agenda. Uh, all 20 elected First Nation bands, obviously everyone who's probably watching this video knows this, uh, along the pipeline route support the project. But uh, yet they're out with uh, placards saying stand up for Indigenous rights and, and uh it's a bunch of uh, kind of white hipsters from Victoria shutting down highways uh, to uh, to try to prove a point that doesn't even make any sense. So that's that, that's kind of what I was pointing out for them. And uh, they don't like that very much. So but they don't have an argument back for it because the, the facts are on on this side. Uh, so what they do is they try to deplatform you and take away your right to speak. So that's that's their strategy. And I mean, given their options, uh, I don't blame them because kind of a full honest, truthful debate definitely wouldn't be in their best interest. And that, uh, well, that is well said, as far as I'm concerned. I've got uh, your the video you did here, The Truth About Illegal Blockades in Canada, and uh, it should be queued up here. So bear with, there's always a, it's always an audio uh, roller coaster ride here on RegWatch as we're uh, <clears throat> integrating new gear. So let's just give this a shot here. One second. It's been set up debate. and completely shut down Highway 17. And that, uh, well, that is well said, as far as I'm concerned. I've got uh, your the video you did here, The Truth About Illegal Blockades in Canada, and uh, it should be queued up here. So bear oh, with, it. there's always a, it's always an audio uh, roller coaster ride here on RegWatch, as we're... Uh, <clears throat> It always is in a roller coaster ride. I cannot monitor uh, uh, our chat. That's the issue. All right, good to go. Here, we're happy now. Here, one sec. Unbelievable. There we go. Okay, we're here at the illegal blockade, which you can see just over there. That's been set up and completely shut down Highway 17, the Pat Bay Highway here in Victoria. You can see uh, if you just turn around there, it's been completely abandoned. It's actually quite eerie. That's because police have diverted traffic down a bunch of smaller roads on either side that are, as of right now, completely clogged up. And uh, those are individuals heading to the airport, to the ferries, trying to catch flights, etc., etc. And at a certain point, I think we just have to say, enough is enough. These have been sprouting out across the country and quite frankly I don't think these individuals even know what they're protesting. They say they're standing up for indigenous rights. All 20 elected First Nation bands along the pipeline route support the project. A majority of West, people of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, the Heisla First Nation, you name it, support the project. And I'm actually tired of the media referring to those people as protesters. If they want to go 50 feet to the left or 50 feet to the right they can protest all they want on the side of highways, roads, in front of the legislature, go for it. Everybody uh, supports that. But this, erecting illegal blockades that infringe on the rights of your fellow citizens, whether it's here in Victoria, whether it's the GOAT trains in Toronto or on a highway in Quebec, that's not on. That needs to end. We have to get the rule of law back in this country. We live in a democracy. People vote in elections. This is not how we get our point across. 
And that's a strong point there, Aaron. That's not so. You're making the point that what they're doing is the wrong way to get the point across. Why do you feel so strongly that that's the case? Because we live in a democracy, as I was saying. Uh, everybody else uh, has strongly held views for and against the pipeline in different provinces of this country, but you don't see everybody else going to blockade and infringe on the rights of their fellow citizens every time you don't get what what or they don't get what what they want or you don't get what you want as part of the public policy uh, debate and implementation process in this country. So I think it's, I mean, really it's childish what they're doing, but it has real uh, consequences for everyday people. That particular video that you just showed, they were blockading the main highway in Victoria that goes to the airport, that goes to the ferries, that goes to the local Saanich Peninsula Hospital. So they're not just, there wasn't just any, any, uh, any road. It was the key artery uh, that left traffic backed up throughout the city. So I don't think uh, I don't think it's legitimate at all. And uh, they're just trying to do whatever they can do uh, to get attention. And uh, quite frankly, I think it's kind of embarrassing that this government uh, and the provincial governments didn't do something about it sooner. And then what do you who do you think is behind it? Is this just a, uh, a, a natural kind of demonstration here that's going on? Or are there organized efforts to disrupt Canada's economy and resource sector uh, in order to achieve some larger goal. Yeah, so there's people that are organizing it at the top. These aren't spontaneous. There was no spontaneous protest that just suddenly uh, came out of nowhere like they'd have you believe. These are, there's people that are, that are organizing these things that are paid by uh, various groups, a lot of which receive their, their, uh, their funding from U.S. foundations, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, now that's not to say an important thing to point out is the, they are true believers. These people really, uh, they might not know why they're there exactly, but they believe they're, they're doing the right thing and they're part of some, some greater movement and, and that they're the victims of, of uh, capitalism and colonialism and all of these things. So they, they, uh, they might not be able to articulate it, but they, they believe they're there for some reason. Um, but... Uh, and I think that actually goes to where this conversation is going to end up head heading is with that fact that these are a lot of people are at the University of Victoria and our various educational institutions and their heads are, uh, are not th these kind of radical ideas are not challenged and uh, they're not um, open to different points of view. And then they end up uh, believing in, in, in ridiculous policies and, and are unable to uh, articulate what they're doing there. One of them here, uh, we have uh, stop colonialism, and you mentioned that. What's your understanding of their desire here, their demand? With, with regard to the illegal blockades? With regard to stop colonialism. Oh, uh, well, I think the colonialism thing is a, it's just kind of this, it's like the Canadian version, the Canadian importation of kind of victim of uh, victim culture and uh, you know, trying to play politics with different groups, identity politics. So um, colonialism is just one of these things where I think people that have been, especially people that have that have problems in their lives or whatever grievance against the state, it's just like the, it's a convenient excuse. Blaming colonialism is something that happened 500 years ago. So uh, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's obviously ridiculous. But um, it's a narrative that also doesn't get challenged in the mainstream media enough and just pointing out what a ridiculous assertion that is. Um, but really, these people are just 
Uh, most of them there in British Columbia, at least, are environmental protesters who don't even know it's a natural gas pipeline, who don't know or slash don't care that all First Nations along the pipeline are all elected banned, support the project. And uh, it's just these environmentalists who are who are latching on to this particular cause. Now, you've been covering this here in British Columbia, but obviously this is a national issue. The protests that were held and rail blockades in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs shut down uh, national rail traffic for many weeks and uh, caused a, a, a huge heartache uh, for the Canadian economy in the hundreds of millions of dollars and obviously affected a lot of individual people too as well. What's your sense in terms of uh, being around these protesters? Um, and we're going to play the video in a second here where you actually tried to talk to them. Why don't you set that up for us a little bit? My question is, is that, you know, when you talk to them, do they have anything to say with regard to the impact that they're having? Yeah, so uh, earlier in the week that this video was filmed, I'm presuming the one that uh, you're about to show, uh, I had gone to the, the legislature here in Victoria where they had blockaded, uh, attempted to blockade the media, MLAs, their staff from actually entering um, the legislature here, the people's, the people's place of, of governance. And it was quite, quite a chaotic, uh, borderline violent uh, energy that was in the crowd. There were, I don't know, three or 400 people there. And um, so this was a couple days after that. And they had decided that they were going to launch this protest called like hashtag shut down the government, which was to protest uh, various ministry uh, buildings throughout Victoria where all the government uh, workers work. So a lot of the government workers just ended up not coming in uh, to begin with. But I decided to approach multiple the multiple protests that they have set up at outside different ministries try to talk to the protesters as if they could articulate what they were doing here to answer some of the basic questions like how do you how do you say you're standing up for indigenous rights while at the same time all 20 elected bands for support the pipeline uh, do you know what's in the pipeline uh these kind of basic questions and uh what you'll see is that most of them because this is a very top-down organizing effort, they've been told not to speak to the media or to anybody unless you're one of the approved spokespeople. Um, yep. So that's kind of the background to that. And uh, you can kind of see that play out. Okay, and, so let's, uh, uh, let, let's yeah. give it a watch on. Uh, perfect, perfect setup, very good. Hey, it's Aaron here in Victoria. Uh, once again, protesters are out protesting the coastal gasoline pipeline for what they say is a show of support for indigenous rights for the Wet'suwet'en people. Uh, over the past couple days, there's been a legal blockade set up across the country, rail lines, ports, highways, bridges. Right now, they're camped outside of a couple buildings. If you look over, uh, look over here, you'll see one of the buildings. Uh, all these different ministry buildings across the city. So what we're gonna do now is uh, go and try to talk to some of these protesters to find out why they're opposing the coastal gasoline pipeline, especially when it has the support of all 20 elected band councils along the pipeline route. Would anyone like to say why they uh, don't support the coastal gasoline pipeline? Does any, would anyone like to say why they don't uh, support the Coastal Gasling Pipeline? Aaron Gunn, proud boy! Proud BC! Proud BC! Anyone, would anyone like to say why they don't support the Coastal Gasling Pipeline? Don't we put it on. And just to kind of help them try to understand, 
because sometimes it doesn't work so well, I brought a visual, which actually shows every single band that has supports and approves the pipeline across northern British Columbia. 20 First Nation bands along the pipeline route all support the project. All support the project. Heisla Band. What else we got? Blueberry River Band. Burns Lake. Wet'suwet'en First Nations. So we got our own personal escort here. Do you guys have anything you'd like to say? This map doesn't look that complicated though. All 20 elected First Nation bands along. Oh, we're fascist now. If you disagree with them, you stand up for indigenous rights and the 20 elected First Nation bands, you call them fascists. Oh, that was great. I was, uh, that was really, really good. Uh, so what did you say there that, uh, you, they started calling you a fascist. Is that what happened? Yeah. There's the one guy there's, uh, there's other stuff you actually don't see as well. So they started calling Justin me, Trudeau uh, has just been found guilty of breaking federal law you can't see off screen. This is on August 14th. The ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, found that Trudeau broke section 9 of the Conflict of Interest Act for his attempts to pressure the former attorney general, Jody Wilson-Raybould, to abandon the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. This is like breaching a constitutional principle of prosecutorial independence. Disconcerning, but... Sorry, taking pictures of your car, you said? One second? Yeah, and license plate and stuff like that. Just the one guy calling me uh, the the fascist in that video. He's a he's a super creep. He's one of like the main organizers, and he's always he was the one. I think he just got, you know, he got invited into the legislature to meet legislature to meet with the minister, and then refused to leave and got arrested. And he just does it every week. Yeah, it's a mix. These protesters, uh, some of them seem to be um, taken advantage of. Would be my characterization. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts yeah, some on are, I would say there's a mix of kind of the true hardcore believers. Those are, the, those are the people that are really radical. Those are the people that you can see yelling at me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a bunch of people, a lot of them I think are probably UVic Poly students or whatever, who are just pro-environment and they care about the environment as we all do. And they've been basically told that this pipeline is really bad and evil and that it's big, bad capitalists to blame. And you should come out and, and protest and show your support. So I think that's the two groups of people. It's the it's kind of the radical, uh, the, the radical ringleaders and uh, the people they get to, to follow them. So this environmental belief, what do you I mean, what do you think it really is? Because it appears if you I always like to do one of these things, if you don't if you don't really know what's uh, behind the cause, you look at the effect <laughs> and their effect. Uh, the effect that they've had is effectively shut down one hundred and fifty billion dollars of, of investment into our resource economy over the last 10, 15 years. And that's massive. That puts us straight on the path to be Venezuela. I, I don't see how. It couldn't, right? If if we are unable to uh, extract our resources and put them on the global market, we will be Venezuela. Yeah. So uh, they're obviously the people that are. Again, it's like a collection of people with grievances. So uh, there's a lot of uh, radical environmentalists who believe the world's going to end in ten years if we don't if we don't make dramatic changes, and that's one cohort of people. There's the um, uh, kind of indigenous 
uh, anti-colonialists who are still trying to rewrite history from 500 years ago. Uh, so the, those two groups have kind of joined up. And then there's the third group, which is kind of the anti-everything, anti-capitalist, anti-business, anti-development that have literally been around I, probably for as long as human history has existed. These people have have found a cause to protest. So I feel like it's a group of those three that have kind of come together. Um, and you see that manifest differently in different provinces. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's what's going on. So it's not nece necessarily a, a uniform uh, movement by any means. And then uh, let's bring climate change into this. How big of a deal is that in terms of motivating this effort? Because of course, this particular protest was framed around RCMP get off of off of uh, Wet'suwet'en lands. This is you know in support of the hereditary chiefs and so forth. There was not a lot of climate change signage and so forth uh, on this particular protest. It was pretty narrow targeted. Yeah, I think they did that for it. It was obviously for strategic reasons. Uh, I don't know if it was a smart strategic decision on their part. But they decided to play that card. Um, it was kind of a, it's an it's an intellectually very weak card because all of the bands along the pipeline route supported the project. Um, but I think they they thought that would be an easier uh, easier hill to stand on potentially because it was a natural gas pipeline that of course is going to export gas to the Asian economies to displace coal and 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 really high high emission. Uh, fuel sources so that could have been why they made that decision but um that is the majority of people that were there that's why they were there even if they didn't say it no one's concerned about a natural gas spill it doesn't even really exist uh nobody is nobody is uh uh everybody who looks at the facts even remotely knows this is a huge economic opportunity for first nations in the area it's got broad first nation support um, so really, the only thing it leaves is is people that are that are uh, so strongly anti fossil fuels and hydrocarbons that they have to protest every possible project because they think that if we don't uh, get rid of uh, get off of all this stuff in the next ten years, the world's going to uh, collapse and die. So unless you fall in that bubble, protesting the pipeline doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, and it's concerning. I mean, it's very concerning that these protests were able to shut down our, our economy like they did. And there's always the threat of increased action down the road uh, that could even be far worse. And, you know, we've had uh, some people on our show over the last several weeks that have made, you know, specific comments that these are, you know, there's a lot of foreign influence to as well. Our position, of course, is that this is a progressive movement. This is the left. This is... Uh, definitely a political action that's going on. Um, but they're, they've got their effect over the last several years on plenty of different areas. So let's jump to the issue that really put your name on the map, if, if you could say it that way. And that was the issue around the statue in Victoria. What was that? So well, how was that two years ago, a year and a half ago now? Uh, yeah. the, the, the mayor of Victoria, along with the council, which is as left wing as any in the entire country, if not more, uh, decided out of nowhere, without any public consultation or debate, to tear down the statue of Canada's first prime minister, Sir Johnny MacDonald, uh, from outside of City Hall. And that caused a huge uproar, both here in Victoria and across the country. 
Uh, it was broad and popular, and of course they proceeded to try to tear it down as quickly as possible uh, to avoid uh, any criticism of it. We arranged a big counter-protest, did a bunch of videos uh, outside both before they tore it down and as they were tearing it down, and uh, it's still a shameful, shameful, sad chapter in the history of, of the city. Uh, and and there you can see you can see it right there being carted away. I don't think they've even they still it's still in hiding. It's last time I checked. So um, that's really what. And, and by the way, that's all connected to this because of course that's the anti-colonialism thing. That's the bizarre notion that the only way we're going to bring this country together is by tearing monuments down of our past, which of course uh, doesn't bring people together. It drives them further apart. So I'm um, just pointing out the hypocrisy of that and the craziness of it, I think. And by the way, it also goes to show how well the kind of radical left is at organizing on a local level for municipal politics. Um, the Victoria City Council is a perfect manif manifestation of that. Exactly. So let's uh, watch your video right now. This time it's here in Victoria where a radical council led by Mayor Lisa Helps is tearing down this statue of our first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. Is this really what political correctness has come to? Expunging our history, erasing our past. Toppling a monument to the father of Confederation who united us, built our country, and delivered on the audacious promise of a national railway. Was he perfect? No, but no one is. He held views on race and residential schools that, while commonplace in the 19th century, are no longer acceptable. But that progress we've made since is what makes Canada what it is today. That doesn't mean we have to tear down what came before us. It doesn't mean we have to erase our past. And it certainly doesn't mean we have to be ashamed of the country we call home. Canada, for all its faults, is the greatest country in the world. And without Sir John A. Macdonald, it's a country that wouldn't even exist. So instead of trying to pretend like our past didn't happen, let's embrace it. Celebrating our achievements while learning from our mistakes. And for goodness sakes, leave the statue alone. Nice. Very good. Very good. You're a good writer. Yeah, well, that, uh, that video... I I actually remember I was I was coming home from uh, I was playing some some hockey with some buddies and somebody called me it was like at noon with the news that this had just been announced out of nowhere and I was so mad like I I, I that might have been the fastest script I ever wrote because I um, obviously only my straight to camera ones are I have something prepared for but that uh, I went home and and knocked that out that was just that was straight from the heart so and usually those are the ones that do the best so. Um, and obviously I wasn't the only one that felt that way. So it's, it, it's, it's still heartening. I will say the, res the response from people on Facebook is one of the things that keeps me doing these videos because, uh, there's obviously a lot of people out there who don't have a voice, who aren't given a voice, especially by the, the mainstream media. And, uh, really it's kind of a, a unbelievable opportunity and privilege to be able to articulate what all of these individuals are, are thinking. And uh, we just got your Facebook page up right now. As we've been showing your name key, we've been uh, putting both your Twitter and your Facebook uh, locations there. Um, so let's just talk about it. They can find you at AaronGunn.ca here on Facebook. And you're thanking them for 25 million views. It's a good number. Yeah, it's it's been... Uh... 
it's like I said, it's been a one heck of a roller coaster ride. But uh, whether it's talking about like the the auto insurance rates here in British Columbia or the statue or uh, these illegal blockades, it's it's uh, each post always leads to to uh, a debate and important conversations that I think really aren't happening in this country and need to happen uh, more often. Obviously, you guys are doing the same thing uh, here at Regulator Watch. Yeah, and do you find that uh, your position is one that uh, garners a lot of you know support on the street or or not? I mean, I know I know for a fact that I don't feel like when I'm walking around having coffee that everybody that's sitting around me in downtown Vancouver shares my opinions on the resource and environmental issues. Uh, I think there's a lot more support than you might think for a lot of these issues. Uh, I definitely have had way more positive interactions than negative interactions with people coming up to talk to me about uh, about my videos. Definitely have had a couple negative ones, but uh, the, the positives outweigh them 10, 10 to 1 or 20 to 1. So I think there's a lot of people that get it. There's a lot of people who uh, also aren't that political. They have busy lives. They have, they have families. They have uh, sports, school, work, all that kind of stuff. So they don't have a lot of time to... to, to you know, to, to watch the news an hour every day or, or whatever, even though I always encourage that. Um, so, so they, they really support just common sense messages being drilled down to them, uh, in a couple minutes where it's appropriate. So I think that that's what I try to do. And, and, uh, those are the kind of people that I, that I try to reach. So let's, uh, two more questions, uh, with regard to this protest stuff, and then we'll move on to, uh, COVID. And, um, the first question is this, if uh, we were so lucky to have some of the protesters uh, and the, and I'm talking about the real, the ones that are really uh, sharp on it. They're not the ones that are fellow travelers. They're the ones that are part of the part of the team and they know the score. What would you say to them? Canadians now Canadians that are militant and part of this whole process to shut down Canada. If you had a chance to talk to them right now, what would you say to them? Well, uh, I guess it depends on the, the format of that discussion. I would, of course, love and would always open to debate any of these individuals. They, of course, don't want to do that, which is very smart on their part. But um, I think that when it comes to the misinformation uh, that they're spreading, they're doing it very purposefully. Uh, you mentioned like the people at the top. So I don't know how much I'd have to say to them about that. They know what they're doing. They know that I know what they're doing. And uh, and they're doing a decent job of it. Now, I actually think that their tactics are probably counterproductive to their own cause over the over the medium to long term. I don't think they're winning uh, a lot of new converts uh, to, to their cause. Their whole point of the illegal blockades, of course, is to raise awareness. And uh, they did that, but it just increased support uh, for the pipeline, which you can see in, in polling since the blockades began. Um, the other thing is they like to, uh, I think a lot of these people are kind of living in the past, somewhat ironically. Uh, they like to point out uh, that they're engaging in civil disobedience. I'm sure their their heroes are, and, and rightly so. Like Nelson, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, uh, Gandhi, these kind of people. But uh, this might be the only uh, civil disobedience protest in history uh, where the people engaging in the civil disobedience have absolutely zero consequences for their actions. And uh, the consequences are actually borne by everybody else, regular citizens. So in a way, this is uh, kind of the inverse of, uh, uh, of all these movements that they claim to, uh, claim to uh, aspire to. 
Right. So they're not they're not experiencing uh, the tragedy of their actions. And quite frankly, I mean, the whole country is slowly uh, uh, going to experience it as our economy gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And before we get to COVID, obviously, as well, is that when we have, you know, these major issues happening, like crash in oil prices and so forth, the country's even more vulnerable because, of course, our oil is landlocked. That's a whole reason why we need pipelines is to get our oil out properly to the global market where we can get full, you know, full rate for it. And so that's why, you know, we're, we're less cushioned than other countries. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, uh, there's a whole, I mean, you could say the same for the fact that we're running massive deficits right now before there was any any conceivable reason to do so. And now when uh, there's an argument for fiscal stimulus, you've already run out of uh, runway. Um, the same thing goes with our oil and energy, energy industry. Uh, it's in rough, such rough shape because of terrible government policies, pipelines being first and foremost, but Bill C-69, Bill C-48, all these other regulatory uh, burdens that have been placed on the industry that when you get another hit, like what's happening now, it's it's just an absolute doomsday scenario for them. So, and you see that reflected in the Canadian dollar and all these things. So it's uh, uh, obviously some of the stuff that's happened right now is unfortunate, but, but it was really uh, up until this moment, completely self-inflicted wound. So here's what I want to ask you uh, on the last bit, and it, it is going to transition us into uh, the COVID issue. But this is with Canada's energy companies. Now, you know, one side has been fighting, you know, tooth and nail to shut down the resource industry. They've been using misinformation. They've been using leftist tactics and they've been winning, you know, public perception on these issues to the point where, you know, Warren Buffett's pulling money out. You know, we're talking, it's like it's a woke issue. It's not even just an environmental issue anymore. It's a woke issue now uh, with regard to all resource extraction in Canada. It's been so tightly connected into colonialism and so forth and the oppressor ideology. It's tough. So you've got energy companies here in Canada. Um, I mean, we've obviously uh, covered and worked with energy companies over the years. And I've got a particular feeling that they kind of let the fight down a bit. I mean, otherwise, you know, why would Jason Kenney, first thing he does is, you know, try to build a war room uh, for the energy industry. What's your position on that? What if you could give the energy industry in Canada some advice on how to fight these people because they need it. They need that advice. What would it be? Yeah, the energy industry. Um, well, I think you got to divide them into two camps, first of all. There's the really big corporations, your billion-dollar corporations, and they've been terrible. They've been uh, they've been horrific. They've been outspent and outmaneuvered by these radical uh, foreign-funded environmental groups. Um, there are some, for every big, big company, there's... Uh, dozens of medium-sized operators. And when I say medium-sized operators, I mean, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars. And uh, I know a lot of them are fed up and they want to see change. The problem with some of these big corporations is in many ways they are, uh, you know, rent seekers. They're, they're, they hire, um, they hire kind of lefty PR people, government relations people, that kind of thing, because they're just trying to get into the government. They don't care if there's a carbon tax. They just want to make sure that the carbon tax doesn't negatively affect them. Uh, so they try to create and work themselves around the rules. And while doing that over the last decade, they've lost 
complete sense of the overall picture and how they're losing the overall battle. And, uh, you know, you go through companies like Suncor, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's really unfortunate to see that they're not on the ground defending their industry, talking about how much better life is made for billions of people around the world because of hydrocarbons, fossil fuels. Like, where would we be without natural gas and oil? The, the world economy would be a disaster. Uh, you know, the mort- mortality rates would be through the roof, all these different things. It, it, oil and gas touches almost everything that we do. And uh, people should be proud of that. People should be proud of working in the industry. Most of the workers are. So it, uh, it would be nice to see some of the larger corporations stepping up to the plate and taking on uh, these radical groups head on. So you, you kind of did the perfect segue, actually, at least from our point of view. I mean, when we look at covering this issue with regard to the environmental protests uh, against resources here in Canada, it seems pretty clear if you want to bring down capitalism, right? You take out the the resources. It's as simple as that. So, and what are the resources you take out? You take out fossil fuels. I mean, it is the industrial revolution. I mean, fossil fuels built uh, capitalism. And so if you want to take capitalism down, you take out the fossil fuels. And that's one of the reasons why the climate change argument is so strong. It's so feverish. It's so, it's got so much religiosity to it because um, it's trying to collapse the entire system. And, you know, I'm sure we could argue maybe back and forth on that. That is how we see it. We, we believe the protesters. We believe um, the activists when they say they want to bring down capitalism. And then when you look at the, you know, the Green New Deal, 12 years to like zero emissions. Uh, Greta Thunberg just said that last week. Zero wants zero emissions by 2030. I mean, this is this means a total, complete change of the way that we work, we live, we teach, you know, everything. So now we're at COVID where the global public health community, progressive left, which runs regulations, regulations exist because of progressivism. You can't ever separate regulating from the thing that gave its birth. And that was politically progressivism. And so here we're in this spot right now where public health together in its cabal, you know, it is, I've got my tin hat is, is on my head right now. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that they're bringing down capitalism with this hysteria. Are they not? Well, uh, the economy is being brought to a halt, obviously. Um, I don't think, uh, I'm sure this is going to, uh, become a little bit of a debate here, but I don't think that that's, uh, but now there's definitely there's definitely lots of evidence of these a couple environmental these, these idiots for lack of a better term kind of cheering on what's been happening, but I don't think that doesn't mean and I wouldn't say I would never for a second suggest that this is somehow a manufactured uh, crisis or anything like that. Uh, I think the you know uh, 350 people who are dead today in Italy uh, from the virus are actually dead today from the virus. So I think I think that that it's real. I think that it's uh, uh, really bad. And of course, it has uh, huge economic consequences um, that are rippling throughout the global economy and will probably continue to ripple, hopefully for not the next year, but uh, we'll have to see. Well, so my question to you, and, and this is a great debate to have, I was excited actually to hear your, that your position on this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically you don't think this is overblown. 
No, I don't think it's overblown at all. I think it's been, uh, I, I don't think it's overblown at all. And I think w with any issue like this, I think there's the degree of uncertainty is higher uh, than is being reported. And that's because people want certainty. Um, so it's kind of crafted even if they don't have all the facts yet. So where this goes from here, I still think is unclear. But uh, I mean, I just just look at the numbers in Europe alone and to say that it's not a serious uh, issue, I think, is, is a hard sell. So the, the last big, big coronavirus that had hit with the swine flu uh, back in the late 2010s, it had infected 750 million people on the planet and we didn't shut down society. I mean, we're talking about a shutdown of societies. Everything is shutting down. It's shut down. And then the government's coming in to bail out not just the economy, but just everything, the workers. It's a massive, massive, massive grab of power. Um, and if we allow this to happen, won't it just be easy to do this again the next time? So again, let me make sure I'm very clear here. Never in the history ever of, of, modern, of modern society has, have we shut down our entire modern society Yet, when there's still only a couple of hundred people dead, uh, it's 5,000 globally, but I mean, we're 8 billion people here. Is it your understanding that this virus is as infectious and deadly as like Ebola and yellow fever and all of that? I mean, I, from what I understand, it's, it's a flu. No, I, don't, I don't think the numbers or the facts bore that out. And also, I think it's actually quite dangerous to to kind of propagate that theory. I mean, why is that? I'm not a, why is that? Why is it dangerous? People, because if people don't take the proper precautions, right, and it's continues to spread, then millions of people could die. Okay, I know, but the spread is the hysteria. So currently right now in the 2019-2020 flu season in the US, they don't have Canadian numbers, but in the US, currently right now, there's 39 million Americans affected by the flu. 16,000 yeah. have already died. So, I mean, where does, where? Okay, so the flu rates, we, we can pull up, we can pull up the flu rates, but they're not even remotely close to the coronavirus fatality rates. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at this. If you have the flu hitting every year in Italy, why does the entire healthcare system not collapse in Italy every year? The people are, it's collapsing. If they didn't quarantine the country like they're doing now, and it continued to grow at an exponential rate, the, you you would not the healthcare capacity would be completely exceeded and you'd have millions dead. So I, no, I don't a bit, think a million mil, sorry millions dead. So that I don't I'm not across I'm, the world. But where where's the proof that coronavirus is that is that deadly? I mean there's all there's there's been worldwide 174,000 people infected that they that they know of, and out of the and the end 69,000 have already had it and gotten over it. So we're looking at, so I've yet to see proof yet that this thing as, is as lethal as they're saying it is. The, the numbers are, are showing that the mortality rate on it is under two, might be a little bit over one, but, by the, but because we don't have any testing in the West, so the U.S. completely has no testing, we don't have that huge number. So if we knew right now that there was 10 million Americans, or if we knew right now that there was 5 million Canadians that were infected with coronavirus, the mortality number on that would just plummet. So it is pretty convenient for us, for us to not know how many people are infected. The more people infected, what that means is that the least likely this disease is to kill you.
That's the the real numbers, the straight numbers. But because we yeah, don't know how many is infected. Yeah, so they, they don't know. If, I mean, look, we have, uh, I, I do what I do for a living, mm-hmm. uh, as I'm sure you do and engineers do. And uh, doctors and infectious disease experts uh, do what they do for a living. Mm-hmm. And all of the numbers coming out from there are between, well, around 2%. Uh, definitely, one can hope that it's closer to 1% because you're underreporting mild cases, of course. But look, it's common sense. Just like all the other things that I talk about, it's common sense. If you look what's happening in Italy, this does not, this is this is not it's not like the quarantine is causing all of this economic distress and isolation. Their healthcare system is is basically shutting down, and that's with all of these uh, crazy. Imagine if you had implemented no policies in Italy right now. How many people would have the disease? How many people would be dead? How many hospitals would have people dying out just on the street outside of them? Dying on the street? Oh my goodness! This is not the plague, my friend. I mean, what, like, are you watching what's happening in Italy right now? Because I, well, I have family over in Italy. In so, okay, so you're emotionalizing it, it then from Italy's point of view. I mean, I can tell you right now as a Western country, uh, on, on numerous scales, I would never be comparing our country to Italy. It's a different country. For one, it's European. For one, it's in the heart of old school. Um, Italy has uh, plenty of its own issues uh, in terms of the way that it thinks uh, about certain things. Some cultures react differently to stress than others, right? And I, and I think that's pretty clear. So, I, I, you know, I can't say any, you know, I can't make any comparison to Italy's healthcare system. We have a different healthcare system. We have a different approach to risk uh, than, than other countries do. Well, I mean, I mean, the healthcare professionals that do this for a living are taking this pretty seriously across the board. So, sure, and, and I mean, allow me to only bring up the fact, and, and we won't get into, because I, I don't want our conversation to be acrimonious at all. So let me just make the point that uh, for the last four and a half years, RegWatch has been covering these exact people, three videos a week. You know, um, the Director General of the Tobacco Control Directorate at Health Canada uh, has been on our show twice, and then the previous uh, person in that job at the head of Health Canada has been on our show. So we talk to epidemiologists every single day uh, for RegWatch. So on both sides of uh, the vaping debate. So, I mean, we understand the continental divide that's inside public health that exists right now at this moment where many, many researchers believe that epidemiology as a science is broken and has been completely devastated by the political actions from within inside uh, the, the progressive part of the public health movement. And then we just watched the CDC, which is leading the charge on this, spend nine months uh, saying that there was an epidemic of youth vaping. Well, 18 months of that, and then about six months saying that vaping causes lung illness and kills you, when everybody in in the vaping industry knew, including FDA in October, uh, knew that it had nothing to do with traditional nicotine vaping products that you could buy that were regulated, and it was black market illicit cannabis products uh, on the market in the U.S. And the CDC knew that too, but yet they still uh, managed to uh, deceive Americans about that issue right up until about three weeks ago. And then, co- you know, COVID took off, uh, CDC closed the, the file on it, put out a note and said, we'll no longer be reporting on the number of uh, vaping-related lung illnesses. And off they went on COVID-19. And now if you don't call it Wuhan, or if you call it Wuhan, you're a racist. And that comes from out of the CDC which controls the naming of all these things. So we don't have any uh, faith in, in these experts. 
because we've been covering them for four years and we know they lie. I mean, I don't know. You can you can say that. I mean, it's just it's everyday doctors and people working in the healthcare uh, system that I talk to, people that sure. are working in here in BC Health. It doesn't matter uh, the competence level or the political biases that some people might have at this at the CDC. The fact is that across the political spectrum now, it's pretty much uniformly look. The virus doesn't care if you're left or right or what country that you live in. It's a virus. This isn't a. These have been going on for hundreds of years. It really shouldn't come as a huge shock or surprise to us that uh, something like this is happening. And uh, but what's happening is happening. The, num- the numbers are real. What's happening on the streets in these in these various countries are is real. It's not a end of the world scenario. Like like you said, we could continue our lives uh, as we're doing now. And just uh, if you if you're okay with seeing, you know, one uh, percent of half the population that gets infected die. But I obviously don't think that that's a uh, legitimate, I don't think that's something that we're willing to accept, certainly not something I'm willing to accept, and uh, th- hence the dramatic measures. Fair enough. So what's the number then? Um, because most of the fatalities have been people who are much, much advanced in age and have pre-existing conditions. And that's not ever factored in to the mortality rate here at all, because, you know, they're they're the ones most susceptible. We could have just done a major program that protected the elderly and so forth, but uh, still kept our society and our economy operating. I mean, there is there is obviously some middle ground, considering that as a Western society, we've been dealing with these kinds of viruses forever. And, you know, you said 100 years, a couple hundred years. The fact of the matter is, is that as long as our species has been on this planet, viruses and bacteria have been killing us. I mean, that's as simple as that. So in a normal process, um, these, uh, this virus would have come in. And it's a novel virus, but it's not new. Uh, coronaviruses are not some brand new bioengineered thing. This is a naturally occurring virus, so to speak, unless you are wearing a tin, tinfoil hat. But, you know, it comes into a population and, it, you know, it's going to be a problem for people who have health problems. That's just natural. And for everybody else that gets it, they're going to fight it and they're going to build antibodies from it. And then after that, they've got new antibodies for a new coronavirus and their kids that they have after that will have those antibodies too. That's how the human being, that's how the human organism, right, survives. We, the human organism doesn't survive by freaking out like this, right? We, 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 we take the pathogen in and our bodies fight it. And, and nothing yet has shown that it would be any deadlier uh, than, than something that might be just a little bit more than a flu. Like, you know, the me- measles, for instance, is far more infectious uh, and has far more dramatic impact on people's health than, than this coronavirus is so far, to be said. That's the you know, point I threw out. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I just look at, <laughs> I get caught, like there's, it has shut down the Italian healthcare system. It is blowing up at France, and this is with it partially contained. There is still the, the you mentioned the flu you mentioned the flu and you're trying to compare it it's it has infectious qualities similar to the flu but if you combine those infectious qualities with the deadliness of this the flu does not hospitalize 20 percent of the people that get the disease which is which is the the best numbers that we have and you can say i don't trust the numbers well that's that's fine but you can't make a decision on a hunch because viruses it's not a like do you do you submit that this could be real, that this could be, or do you just submit that viruses can never be this bad? 
No, I, I, I don't. I don't. No, 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 no. No, viruses, of course, can be horrible. So here's the deal. Of course, this is a virus. Of course, this is a coronavirus. Of course, it's out. Of course, it's getting around. Of course, that's what viruses do. Or the reaction is completely political, totally overblown. Um, it's it's a power grab. It's designed to. It's designed to. It's designed to fulfill the. Um, so progressives have a desire uh, to create to manufacture what's called a moral equivalency of war. So short of war, they create moral equivalencies of war, and they use that to marshal the troops and mobilize the herd into doing and going ways in which that they believe that we need to take society in order to make, to become better people. And that's these aren't the, progressives. These aren't progressives doing it. Trump's well, public, doing health, it. public health is progressive, and Trump is just following public health, just like public everybody health else. And so... So this is a public uh, progressives embedded in public health agencies of every country in the world. Oh, no, 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 no. You're missing it. No, no, no. Public health is progressive. Public health is the is is a movement that is created by the progressive movement. Public health is created by progressivism. Progressives, when they came in and they reformed, they created public health. So it's it, it is the same thing. Look, I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, doc, people that work in this field, like doctors, like they're, uh, there's obviously some people have political bends, and uh, who, I mean, ho hopefully you're right and was just overreacting to the situation. But uh, uh, I'd rather be on that side than underreacting and then having to reflect on millions of people who are now dead because we didn't do anything. So let and me ask I, you that. I got it. So let me ask you this question because that's pretty stark, right? The death, right? So let me ask you this question. So then doesn't, don't the environmentalists then have a really good point when they say that according to the precautionary principle, we take a look at the horrible reaction that our planet is having to all the fossil fuels. And they will argue that the longer we keep raising the temperature of the planet, the more we're causing the death of the planet and the death of real human beings and everything else. So if, if there, I ask you, if, is that not then of the same weight as the coronavirus. So if, if it's okay to shut down the uh, capitalism for a time in order to prevent a few thousand deaths or a hundred thousand deaths, why not then shut down capitalism in order to prevent the warming of the planet? Well, you actually make a, it's, 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 uh, it's a great argument to look at side by side because these act and, all, and almost a, a timely one, because these activists have been using the terminology climate emergency, climate emergency, which actually has not been pushed back upon as it should have been by uh, uh, our politicians and people in the media, et cetera, et cetera, because it's not an emergency. No matter where you are on the CO2 uh, causing climate change uh, debate, the fact is, is that uh, this is a long-term uh, challenge, a long-term issue, uh, not one that is that is happening that something if something doesn't happen tomorrow or doesn't happen in the next six months or doesn't happen on this this rapid uh ramp up timeline that there's going to be this catastrophe and thousands of people are going to die that was actually uh why i mo openly mock it and and use it as an example for ridicule and bad public policy this is the exact opposite and it's almost perfect timing this is a, a, an example of something where literally, if you don't do something quickly, you don't take dramatic action, hundreds of people are already dying in, into the thousands, and it could become tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands if you don't take that dramatic action. That is, and that's not, uh, we have evidence of this happening throughout 
throughout history. So uh, like anything, nothing's a slam dunk. Like you don't, the, the warmer weather's coming, uh, who knows how this thing ebbs. Uh, you made the point, which is a very valid point, about how you don't know the exact fatality rate. Hopefully there's lots of people that, uh, that got the disease, but uh, it was mild symptoms. They just stayed home, never got tested. So you're under, you're under reporting the total cases um, and thus uh, over reporting the mortality rate. Uh, but that also might not be the case. And uh, th there's also even worst case scenarios. And you see in Italy and some of these countries in Europe that have advanced healthcare systems just as good as Canada's, starting to crumble under the pressure and trying to put uh, all of these restrictions in place. And if, if you want to call it hysteria, then I ask them, what do you think would happen if they didn't put those restrictions in place? This I think there's a bunch of people that would got sick in a cold and in, a, and in 10, 10, 14 days, they'd be over it. I mean, honestly. And, and the whole, so why is the hospital system collapsing? Well, because when you have a hysteria, you, pr you, you create all this pressure. All of a sudden you're, you're trying to shove all these people so, into so the they're system. Ru they're running out of ventilators because of hysteria? I well, don't think the you know, I don't know. The ventilator thing, look, I've been through this thing. I've been, you know, I've been in television news now for 30 years. So I could do a litany of, uh, of issues that are when you're in the moment that are grabbed by mainstream media and then shoved down people's throat. I can take it all the way back to the Iraq war in 1990 and the issues of the incubators for babies and stuff like that. And how they were getting thrown out by the Iraqis and this. I mean, there are so, you're guaranteed you're going to find one or two key things like this shortage of ventilator stuff. Just taking over as a raison d'etre to help justify certain things happens all the time in every war. The left likes to create the moral equivalency of war. And so, as you know, globally, they, they're, they're, this is a marshalling like a warlike marshalling against this issue. And it, and, you know, when it's bringing people's, you know, standing to attention there's to it. No, there's no left-right response to this. You're it's missing been, the point. You're missing the point. The, you're missing I'm the point. Missing the, yeah, hold on for a second. Hold on for a second. There is no such thing as a unity of thought amongst human beings on this planet. That's why there is war and we do kill each other. So to just say, well, let's put it all aside and not say politics are involved in an issue of, say, war and global pandemic. And uh, is just, I, I think, is just, you just can't do that. Yeah. You can't just say like, oh, there's no nobody's thinking politically here. Thinking politically is is not is not a right thing to do. The fact of the matter is, is that every decision that's made about war, about major economy, about major things with health and stuff like that are always impacted by politics. And I'm not talking. I, I understand. I understand yeah. that politics affects every decision, but there's been no left. Right. There's no one side of the political spectrum taking the virus not seriously and the other side taking it seriously. Oh, well, that's not All true. The, in the U.S., the Republicans are getting their butt handed to them because they they've been trying to downplay it a bit. Right. I'm downplaying it. I'm saying this is overblown. I'm saying I'm saying this. I'm saying this. Public health has completely failed. All of these healthcare systems you're talking about, these, these Western first world healthcare systems our deal with them, the deal is as taxpayers and as individuals, as citizens of Canada, right? Our deal is, is that we're going to grant you massive amount of ability to take away our individual liberty and our rights, right? In order to protect us in the event of a massive, massive health disaster, which would be Ebola, yellow fever, the plague, and stuff like that. We, we, we give that freely away. They've broken their agreement with us as healthcare people. They went completely from, there's a virus in, in China that's a part of the flu family, right? We don't know much about it. 
oh, there's a few hundred cases in Italy to shut down. And the whole apparatus of woke media has jumped right down on it. You see, if you bring up that this isn't the right thing, you know, you're going to get stomped on. All the corporations have to follow through because they've got liability issues when it comes to following OSHA and Health Canada and public, public, you know, public uh, Health Canada and all of the work uh, regulations that are involved. So at some point, the corporations and the entertainment, all of them, they have to pull the trigger on this. Otherwise, they're going to be exposed to liability. And that's regulations that have done that. So at, the, so at this point, you know, you do have to look at it and go, well, they failed. They're supposed to be somewhere in between shutting down our entire capitalist society and, and telling us that the way we live, work, go to school, our entire lives are going to change from this day forward. Bloomberg's just shoving out, you know, crap. CBC's shoving out crap saying your life is forever changed now because of this. That, that, that's the politics of, of progressivism. Not left, right, whatever you want. This is your life's changed. How's my life changed? Just to finish that point, there has to be somewhere in between shutting down Western civilization and taking care of a minor, a, a, a minor flu that could kill. That's all. That's the deal. Minor flu. Well, look, for, 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 kill mil- have the potential well, this kill one hasn't killed millions, and there's been nothing to prove Spanish that it will kill millions. In 1918 was there's not nothing a minor that flu. proves this is the Spanish flu. Nothing. Well, I mean, we just, yeah, it's got it's absolutely destroying the healthcare systems of most of Europe. I mean, I think it's just so irresponsible to say that when you have all these healthcare professionals, like doctors, I'm sure you know doctors. They're not out there to make a political point. That they're out there to save lives and and if this thing gets out of control uh and by the way you made the point about wars uh which is a uh about governments coming in to take uh certain freedoms away in in dire situations yes yes that happens that happens uh and sometimes governments do it because they're trying to uh solidify political power or they're trying to strengthen their hold on the state uh etc etc and sometimes you're actually in a war and governments are doing it for the national survival of the country. So both things happen. And our jobs, obviously, are to evaluate uh, each situation. And I would put to you that the numbers that are coming in that anybody can Google, that you can look, that are sites that just tabulate it, are real. And the, the growth of this is real. And the uniform political response across the political spectrum, left or right, shows that it is real and that is and the and the thing is uh the stuff that's coming out of europe that is with dramatic action so the the and what china did was even more dramatic and the cost of the idea is that with dramatic action now you can make it so this doesn't drag out uh and kill millions of people so that's obviously what they're trying to do i agreed and i just i you know uh, you can make that argument exactly for climate change you can make that you could exactly what you just said is exactly the argument for why we need to take immediate action on climate change and we need to get to zero emissions and we need to shut down the resource industry. Because if we don't do that now, right, millions of people will die because the yeah, flooding- except that's, a, except that's a lie and this is actually happening. And there's the hospitals are actually uh, bursting at the seams in Italy and there's, there's thousands of body bags across the world. And when they say that's happening with the climate change, that's not true. So that's the difference. Okay. There's, a, there's a big difference. One is that it's actually happening and one is a hypothetical uh, challenge that we have to face over the next 
50 to 100 years. Well, just like climate change, I think with this coronavirus, I think there's there's a happy medium somewhere in between. And I don't think we found it yet with climate change. And I think we're just shooting way past it with coronavirus. So, but, uh, you know, obviously I'm definitely not numbered. Uh, it, it, people, how I think on this issue is not in the high numbers, but our job as media is to be skeptical. That's what we do. And, uh, and we like to uh, put questions to power and we don't trust experts because experts, doctors are, I know a lot of doctors too. And I've interviewed a lot of doctors too. Uh, that doesn't mean that they aren't as susceptible to believing things just like everybody else is. And of course, you know, everybody wants to have uh, uh, to be safe. And the precautionary principle is an extremely strong principle. And by the way, one of the reasons why we might be seeing some of the, the reaction in Europe be so strong is because the precautionary principle is embedded inside the European Union. It's definitely, you know, held to the heart. It's actually in Canada's uh, regulatory environment too. It's embedded in ours. In the U.S., it's not. They they recognize that there's the precautionary principle, but they don't put it at the forefront of all regulation. And the precautionary principle, for people who don't know, is a principle that says that in the absence of science, but with a belief that a possible outcome could happen, it's your duty to stop the outcome. Because you just got to play it safe, right? It's the old better safe than sorry. But in the regulatory environment, it's called the precautionary principle. And it was first brought in through environmentalism and public health together over a bunch of issues in the 70s and it fought for in the 80s and then got enacted into legislation in the 90s and the 2000s. And what it really and so really does mean that if there is an absence of scientific evidence, but a real strong belief by the experts that a very disastrous outcome could happen, then the regulator, the, the the experts have the authority to then stop that action from happening even before it starts. So, and then it's called the precautionary principle. Yeah, and I think that's what they were operating on a month ago, and now it's uh, it's here. And they probably wish, I bet you if you ask every head of state in Europe, they wish they had done more a month ago. And that's, you know, we're a couple of weeks behind Europe. And uh, look, there's, also, there's always other approaches you can take. You could try to isolate and quarantine the vulnerable population and and try to try to do it that way uh i know the uk is doing a slightly different approach but uh the fact of the matter is the only country that seems to have gotten this under control is china and to a lesser extent south korea and they've done that through massive massive intervention the 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 the, the likes of which might not even be possible here so look we'll see how we i i really do hope that you're right and this is not a big deal but if you look at the death rates in Italy and the hospital strain on Italy and you multiply that out throughout the population uh, as the flu, a traditional flu would travel, the results are devastating. So, you know, I don't think I don't think people are ready to just give up and let 500,000, uh, you know, or 100,000 Canadians die from this thing. So I don't th and I think that's the trajectory that that we were on without intervention. And we'll see if we can, we'll see if we can achieve a better result than that. Well, it's definitely trying times. There is no doubt, no doubt. So uh, let's end on this note, Aaron. What's next for you? You've obviously got, you know, a great track record here on videos on these issues on a bunch of them. What, what can you tell us about your next projects that you're working on? What can people expect to see from Aaron Gunn coming soon? 
Well, that's a, that's a nice segue there because uh, the news stories right now, I'm sure if you pulled up uh, CTV or Global or something, would probably be all coronavirus. So uh, I've got, uh, there's a couple of videos that are actually already filmed. I'm just deciding uh, if I'm going to be releasing them. Um, and uh, we're kind of in uncharted territories for the short term at least, but this will obviously pass. And in the medium long term, it's just to continue to speak to the issues that matter to Canadians uh, and specifically to ones uh, or specifically to viewpoints that aren't being articulated in the mainstream media, uh, at least as much as they should be. So that's what I'm going to continue doing. Um, and uh, on Facebook, on uh, probably going to get onto YouTube here in a bit. I know we never got to talking about uh, the limitations of Facebook. I know we both had our challenges. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, just continue to do what I do. I mean, I I, I love doing it, and uh, it's just great to get the word out on on all these important topics. Absolutely, well, you're doing a fantastic job, and I want you back on the show anytime. And certainly, obviously, we can uh, do that maybe in a couple of months. I'll have you back on before that. But I'm saying, you know, in six months from now, we should be doing a coronavirus update and see which one of us is you know filled with shame. It's probably going to be me. Yeah, well, uh, the one thing I, I really appreciate, and I'm sure you appreciate it as well, that, that the right of center in this country is so much better at is having these open and honest and frank discussions that just do, do, do not happen on the left, uh, which is which is unfortunate. And because I would love to be able to do this with someone, have that coronavirus conversation with someone who's uh, anti-pipeline. But of course, none of them uh, are willing to do it. Yeah, no, and absolutely. There is zero conversation. They just won't have it at all. And here's a perfect example. Clearly, you and I have two opposing issues, you know, views on the coronavirus, very strong ones too, in fact, but we agree on so much else, right? So, mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't get seen at all in the dialogue in Canada, there's no doubt. So, well, that's all. Stay right there for me uh, and I'll catch you just in one second. And that is it for this edition of RegWatch. So before you head off, please head over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com and, and consider making a fun. I'm trying to squeeze money out of them here and I'm choking up. Uh, consider making the financial contribution to our coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet, find a few dollars and toss them our way. Please cough on them if you want. I don't care. I'm a conservative. And so I think I'll survive uh, the coronavirus. And uh, while you're online, please don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.